Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and with me, as always, is Nicholas Seagraves. Hey, Nick. Hey, Ryan. On today's episode of The Mean, our podcast that we do, episode 26, we'll be talking about party lines, not the fun kind that old white people do at weddings to to supposedly Caribbean music, but the kind uh, against which we measure people's purity. An alternative title for this podcast could be Purity or Litmus Tests, but Party Lines just sounded more fun. So you and I have been talking about this in various forms as we've talked about the new tribalism. We've talked about the oppression Olympics and outrage and different ways that our cultural fragmentation, pluralism with postmodernity. This kind of is the coming together of a lot of different episodes of The Mean, which you should check out on iTunes, which you're already doing right now, hopefully, or on SoundCloud. Um, there's a lot here, but we thought that the best way to dive into this topic was to talk about something that maybe is not that important to most of our listeners, or or maybe I'm assuming that, but, um, how do you see party lines working in the, uh, the wide world of metal? Mm -hmm. Um, well, as you know, metal's a very open, dynamic community. (laughs) Um, it actually is so, uh, but in metal, and by metal, party, we're not talking about material science. We're talking no, we about are music. not. We are talking about music. We're um, ostensibly talking about music. That's a burn. Yeah. Ooh. Um, basically, metal is a genre of music that also has a huge shocker um, cultural aspect to it. Mm-hmm. So you have metalheads, you know, those people, mm-hmm. and like. There's movie, even movies are about it, like Wayne's World and people mm-hmm. like that, where it's like the grungy, white, long haired metal mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, and more recently, we have uh, we had uh, Metalocalypse. Yeah, which is like a big critique of the whole culture. Um, but it it's interesting that in a genre that has names like Lamb of God and Mm-hmm. Um, like fu type of mentalities. Mm-hmm. There's this very strong um, push within the community to this to discern what is metal and what is not metal, especially mm-hmm. as times change. Um, so who's so, in and who's out? Yeah, and how even things that can seem like the definition of metal. So let's say Black Sabbath, which mm-hmm. is considered the first metal band. Mm-hmm. I believe the and first band to be called heavy metal heavy was metal. Was, yeah. uh, was Led Zeppelin. Right? Oh. I, the narrative I've been given is that the guitarist from Black Sabbath mm-hmm. got his fingers caught in a in a like hydro hydro press thing Oof. Uh, in Liverpool because they were all like factory workers. Mm-hmm. And and he had these two like metal rods on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when he put, and that's what he uh, held the guitar with. And so it produced the kind of like incredibly loud, mm-hmm. dissonant sound. And because of that, a Rolling Stone critic called it heavy metal. Okay, let's go with that uh, then. I would yeah. say Zeppelin represents the roots. Yeah, like obviously oh, Hel- sure. Helter Skelter from the Beatles into mm-hmm. Led Zeppelin, then into things like Black Sabbath. But those none of those are considered metal anymore. Yeah, it's true. 
Well, and that's the thing. So you have those people, and you have people like Metallica and Iron Maiden, which mm-hmm. are like they were the gods. Yeah, yeah. They were the gods of metal. And you will see, like, okay, so I I subscribe to a subreddit called R Crappy Music, mm-hmm. which is normally filled with like people doing Evanescence covers, mm-hmm. and like uh, the top post right now is Disturbs cover of Sound of Silence. Mm-hmm. So a lot of uh, My Chemical Romance, no? I mean, but covers. It's not really yeah, yeah. a place for, like, I don't like this music. Mm-hmm. It's more like, this is just really not good. This is objectively bad. And out of every ten posts, there'll be, like, a Metallica song by some, like, throwaway account that says, like, this is, this is like, pussy music, this isn't metal, like, blah, blah, blah. And you can kind of see this outlashing of the community of, like, because it's melodic and now heavy metal has turned into this kind of like drone-ish hyper-technicalism. Mm-hmm. Um, Doesn't even have like, a double bass pedal. Yeah. It's like, it's ba- that's basically the critique Like this is too soft to be metal. Mm-hmm. And so you have this huge push in it where it's constantly trying to keep this purity of what is metal. Mm-hmm. You know? um, so. I think that's a good a good encapsulation of, of one community that's a dynamic community that's always trying to define, redefine, mm-hmm. and um, and figure out what are we, what is our identity, who's in and who's out. I, I know that for me, I, I don't pay as much attention to metal as I do to the political landscape. And, you know, for a long time, there's been this phrase that a lot of people like to use, rhino, mm-hmm. R-I-N-O, it's Republican in name only. And that's sort of like hardcore conservative Republicans saying like Mitt Romney's not really a Republican. This guy's not really a Republican. And there's always like different, there's like a shifting, you know, a shifting um, litmus test for, for who's in and who's out. Like for the last few years, immigration has been a big part. Like Marco Rubio was accused of being a rhino because he tried to pass comprehensive immigration reform, uh, partnering with Democrats. Um, amnesty is, is the big the big uh, boogeyman ghost word for that. Uh, whereas like the, the, the most worshipped Republican presidential figure of the last hundred years is Ronald Reagan. And he did that. He, he gave granted amnesty for illegal immigrants. So mm-hmm. if Ronald Reagan is a rhino, then like who isn't like, who is our actual Republican? You know, and that that's one of my, one of my questions as a conservative. And another question I have related to politics is, you know, people on the left claiming that Marco Rubio and even more so Ted Cruz aren't real Latinos, basically, because they don't yeah. represent, quote unquote, Latino values, which are which are Democratic Party values. And so my question, the thing that brought me to this this discussion of, of party lines is what is happening? Like what brought us here? What's happening philosophically? What has been the historical movement? And I wanted you and I to kind of hash out. You know, the, we're not the first time in human history where there's been purity cultures, where there's been you mm-hmm. know very strictly defined in and outs. I mean, it's been going on for a very long time. But in this moment in popular culture, you know, we like to consider ourselves as Americans very pluralistic. There's a lot of different people who hold a lot of different opinions. I'm OK. You're OK. Uh, there's a million different TV channels and podcasts and YouTube and echo chamber stuff going on in social media. So what's the deal? Like, shouldn't we be like the least litmus testy purity test, uh, party lines culture ever? Like, why aren't we like what, what's gone wrong here? 
Mm-hmm. I think there's two uh, motivations for a purity culture. Um, I think the first one is the level of threat those cultures feel mm-hmm. um, fr- from being completely like evaporated. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, yep. Whether from other cultures or just from, I mean, like if you look at the Puritans who had, I mean, their name's the Puritans, but whose culture had it where it's like, oh, you are a Quaker, you have to go live in Rhode Island you know, mm-hmm. type beliefs here. So like very stringent, mm-hmm. um, pure, obviously. But it's also like a culture that's living in a hostile wilderness. Yeah. You and have to protect also... your, your uh, exterior boundaries from, mm-hmm. you have to protect your community with strong kind of borders in order to, you know, maintain your tenuous grasp on survival. Yeah. And that doesn't justify anything they did, but mm-hmm. it's, I think it's a metaphor that can apply to our culture when you mm-hmm. have things like metals, a great example, metals always on the verge of becoming too commercial. It's one of the few genres mm-hmm. that I don't think could exist as a gigantic cultural force just mm-hmm. because of what it preaches. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this, it would be like if there were no rap songs about enjoying Mercedes Benz and there was mm-hmm. only rap songs about being angry with the police. Mm-hmm. You know, if, mm-hmm. if Kanye it would be more West, of a subculture or a marginal yeah, kind of a thing. Yeah. Kanye West couldn't exist in that culture. You yeah. know, like it, he would be a sore thumb. Well, and I would say at the same time, metal is threatened by not ever having been something that could be mainstream, not just because of what it is, but because of the number mm-hmm. of people who enjoy it or pointedly do not enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's why Metalocalypse is a really great critique because it's, it imagines a world where the, the Beatles were heavy metal musicians, basically like yeah. where everyone loves heavy metal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of shows like how ridiculous, like it just, it can't work in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think there's that. So that's, that's the first thing. And that can so, be seen. So external in, threats or existential yeah. threats. Yeah. And the second thing is, I think it is when a person commits to an absolute idea that purity amongst their brethren becomes very important. Very, very, very important. Okay, this is an important claim you're making, and I know that not everybody who listens to our podcast are philosophers. So could you give us a little... You're you're using loaded philosophical language. Could you give us a little history of philosophy lesson as to what you mean when you're talking about absolutes? Mm-hmm. Um, I think... So what you have is you have... Sorry if you're hearing music. I have to keep my windows open. I apologize in advance. Um, you have a philosopher named Hegel. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not the first one, but he's easy to talk about in this way because he uses mm-hmm. the word absolute a lot. And we call him um, Hegel because his real name is like Wilhelm Friedrich Gayle. like blah, 18 blah. first names. So just we call yeah. him Hegel. Just, just Hagee. Um, mm-hmm. he, so he uses literally the phrase absolute standpoint, um, absolute ideals, intellectual intuition, things like that. Um, and he basically through a form of dialectics and a constant back and forth between two sides claimed that 
you could reach an absolute standpoint. And he's not the first one. There's a lot of people who operated with like claims of absolute knowledge. I mean, for Plato, it's the closer you get to understanding the the true nature, and he would say the good nature. Like yeah. the good is the absolute in that system. And for even someone like Aristotle, reasonable thinking itself is an absolute. Um, so he doesn't really have like whatever. But what I, what I mean by all these things is it's a standpoint. It's a, normally a transcendental object or a transcendent object rather that kind of is a keystone for everything else. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's make it more concrete. Um, so for really extreme libertarians yeah um sometimes the idea of a free market becomes an absolute Mm -hmm. and what i mean by that it is it's a justification in and of itself like it doesn't need Mm -hmm. justification it just is good yeah it's an axiom it's a standard by which all things are measured it's an argument from authority basically you don't Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily always have to argue about why free markets are the best thing it's almost assumed and they will they will argue and prove that libertarians aren't all like just being axiomatic but but it is the standard that ends up being used like for example on some of the issues that make me not appear libertarian like libertarians will say well any attempt by the government to incentivize any kind of behavior is and then they use this boogeyman phrase social engineering yeah. And it's like the free market will just figure it out. And it's like, well, at a certain point, like my, my questions for my friends are always like, well, what about monopolies? What about oligopolies? Yeah. What about markets that become less free of their own mutation? What about um, the things that markets can't produce that they rely upon? Let's say populations, transportation, rule of law. These are the reasons I'm not a pure libertarian. Those markets don't produce those things naturally. Those things have to be provided by some other thing. But when you're talking to someone who's like really ideologically libertarian, it almost seems like sometimes like none of that matters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because they don't need justification for it. All those arguments you just gave, it's almost like unimaginable that you would say that. It, yeah. Because it seems so self-evidently worth it Mm -hmm. in every sense like i think the child credit is like a pretty good idea like if you wanted to eliminate the child tax credit like i think i'd be okay with that but i'd want reasons Mm -hmm. but the reason i hear a lot of libertarians say is well it's social engineering yeah and that's that's basically just like me being like well that's evil yeah and when you get the kind of absolutist type thinking you end up with devils right Mm-hmm. Well, you end up with heretics. That's mm-hmm. your thing. Because in an absolutist world, the devil is easy. You know, so like for libertarians, Bernie Sanders is easy because he calls himself a socialist. Yeah. You know, that's easy. So that's bad, duh, because it's not the free market. The tricky, scary thing is the Salem witch trials. You know, it's the it's the from within the people who yeah. aren't really it's Mitt Romney. Yeah. It's Mitt Romney, right? Yes. Because like here yeah. is this uber successful bootstrap businessman, saved the Salt Lake City Olympics, uh made Massachusetts fiscally stable, but he breaks some of the absolute requirements of being a pure small government, you know, libertarian 
free market conservative. And so he becomes the heretic, right? That kind of, he's a rhino to them or he's a, exactly. he's, he's, he's a big guy. He's what they call Democrat light. It's basically mm-hmm. like, Oh, you're just a Democrat, but you just want a slightly smaller government. Yeah. Well, it's like, and that hits on both reasons. So one, he, so I didn't really explain this, but how absolutism deals with party lines is when you have an absolute, okay, so if let's say me and you are both libertarians, and I say, of course, they don't say stuff like this, but I say, isn't my absolute the free market great? And you said, yeah, that's funny. That's my absolute standpoint as well, the free yeah. market. And we were like, cool. And then we, you know, on 98% of things, we're like, yes, yes, absolutely. You're so right. Great, great, great. And then we're out and we're having a conference and we're both libertarian speakers and we got a really good honorarium, et cetera. And we get asked a question on what do you guys think about the civil rights movement and the civil rights law that a refusal to deny service? And I say, Mm -hmm. well, I think it's ridiculous that it's in effect. And you say, well, I think it has a place to protect the free market. Mm-hmm. At that point, one of us is not channeling, quote unquote, the absolute in the other person's eye, you know. Mm-hmm. So like that small difference becomes mm-hmm. a huge deal because we both claim to be just almost like vessels mm-hmm. of the free market. Yeah, it's an, it's, a, it's an impurity in one of us. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can see this a lot with like the drama between nt Wright and um john piper john piper you know like is the drama about whether jesus christ was god no was it about him being raised from the dead no is it about god being real no is it even about like a huge ethical issue in our culture like abortion no mm-hmm. it's about how we interpret some things paul said either through a jewish historical understanding or through a more reformed understanding and because sorry to all of of the listeners who couldn't care less about um pauline uh theories of uh, atonement i'm so sorry but it's like a great example but because these people operate with like when you label your organization the gospel coalition Mm -hmm. you know like i'm representing Christ's work in contemporary culture. If mm-hmm. there's even a slight disagreement, mm-hmm. that, talk person, about it. that person is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. It becomes, it becomes huge, the it becomes literally. There's these conferences they started called uh, the conferences are called Elephant Room. Yes, because it's, ele- it's the yeah. elephant in the room. But uh, most of the issues, if you're not part of this Christian subculture, mm-hmm. you don't care about it at all. It yeah. doesn't matter. It's like the thing that you said to me about Hegel and how it becomes very important uh, which trousers you select. Yeah. Because if you have the one true viewpoint, you know, if you have found the God's eye view, the bird's eye view of history and truth and ethics and everything, everything falls under this, then why would there be disagreement? That means if there's any difference between the people who subscribe to that, then that means one of them isn't actually fully involved. And so that's where um, 
the thing like Rhinos and Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney's a huge problem. Yeah. Because he, if he said, I'm not really a Republican, I'm just running under the Republican Party, it wouldn't actually be a problem. But because yeah. he says, I'm a Republican, suddenly it's the heresy thing. It, yeah. it, it gets really big. Um, yeah. So I, I think if that makes sense of how the, how absolute thinking connects to the need for purity. Okay. And to go ways. back to Hegel and the philosophical mm-hmm. roots of this, were there any people kind of critiquing Hegel's cause Hegel's absolute was synthesis, right? You have thesis, mm-hmm. you have antithesis, that's position A, position C, and then you find a position B, which is some kind of integration of those two opposing ideas and that's the absolute standard what were the philosophers who are like nah i don't really see that like like what was the because you and i are finding fault with the absolute position and in order to kind of diagnose what a potential solution could be we should probably look at some of the philosophers who are like "Mm, not so sure you're on to the right thing here buddy yeah basically every major 20th century philosopher said no to that boom eat it hegel Um, and that doesn't mean Hegel doesn't have a lot of good things to say. And in, in fact, I think he's super underappreciated. Um, but I can't think of a single actual. Kierkegaard was not having it. No. Well, you have like the first waivers. So you have like Kierke and Nietzsche who are like, no, like I can't, we can't do this. And then you have the Anglo-American philosophy, which is like their first critique is like, first of all, you, you are just speaking nonsense constantly. Like you are just constantly making words up and no one, you don't know what they mean. I don't know what they mean. No one knows what they mean. Like this is not serious philosophy. So you you have tons of things. And then once postmodern, like late modernism was already over absolutes, you know, like it was already, it was the absolutes were the only thing that survived of it was like methodology yeah. So you have a lot of people looking for like the absolute methodology, but there was no absolute belief. Well, and the sciences were boldly carrying forward like the materialist scientist absolutism of there's nothing beyond like empiricism mm-hmm. 2.0 kind of a thing. Yeah. But even in that's if being the most charitable to that, that's so different from Hegel because there's still no beliefs, you know, I think yeah. it became unraveled when people showed that it actually, you had to believe in some absolute things to get that off the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, but it on paper, it was like, well, really what we're doing is we're just solidifying a method. Mm-hmm. If we, if you, the scientific method is an absolute way to find truth in, yeah. in whatever that might find, who can say, but we know for sure it's this. And then people went in and were like, well, there's all these other things, but and then especially once you get to postmodernism, which everyone loves to talk about being this like huge rampant cultural force that everyone subscribes to now. Yeah. Um, but which in a post-modern, lot of, yeah. postmodernism itself would say that that's unlikely. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I don't. Differences in location, perspective, you know, yeah. perception, all this stuff. I don't want to sound like an edgy edgelord, but I can't imagine postmodernism ever being actually widely accepted yeah i mean and postmodernism itself is is it's a refractory in nature right and Mm -hmm. so it it's probably not going to be a home-based methodology for very long 
Um, it's going, you know, elements of it will be absorbed by people who are structuralist, foundationalist, post-structuralist, whatever, you know, all these different people are going to use it as a critique of modernity and of the absolute things being claimed by early modernity and other philosophies. But what I wanted to get to is why hasn't post-modernity led to a reduction in our culture? And I'm assuming this to be true of this kind of purity litmus test party lines kind of a thinking like why why are why hasn't the influence of postmodernism which we do see in, in in a lot of robust ways in our media and our culture and art and things like that why hasn't it led to you know the end of the kind of metal culture or rhino um or what's what does it mean to be a real latino um discussions why haven't those kind of gone away um, I would say because to be a real POMO, you know, you have to actually have bought into modernity. Okay. So, and I know that sounds crazy. I, I just, please hear me out. So yep. like to actually crave real postmodernism, modernity has to be at least somewhat effective to you. you know? Yeah. It has to, so, it has to affect your life in some way. Yeah. So, um, for example, Derrida strongly felt the power of structuralism. You know, yeah. he he was a structuralist, and he in the power of phenomenology, which are these huge systems that were supposed to like bring back like absolute knowledge, like get back to the like core of things, and yeah. either through language or through observation. Um, but because of that, he could make his system, not in spite of it. And I think he would say that, too. I don't, I don't think he would. Well, yeah, and we see that, that some of the greatest postmodern thinkers are still using, because it's absolutely necessary, still using mm -hmm. some, quote, unquote, modernist tools. Yeah, and they never claimed not to be. You know, like, I don't think any of them were like, we, well, first of all, none of them were like, I'm postmodern. Yeah. You know, except yeah. except Leotard, whatever, yeah. and he was a joke. Mm -hmm. So I don't care. Yeah, and, um, in that way, like, they were they were the philosophical hipsters. They would never yeah. admit to being postmodern. Exactly, um, but and it, it's the same thing with the problem that existentialism runs into. Is on paper, everyone who's like twenty one and has like a chip on their shoulder yeah. is super attracted to existentialism. Mm -hmm. But in reality, very few people are willing to live as an existentialist. And I think postmodernism is the same way. On paper, this giant upheaval of the state, of religion, of medical language, of legal language, of language in general, of politic, of art, of everything, like everything being reexamined, sounds great because you're sick of it. But then when you have to live by the actual rules, which are like, okay, but that means accepting a lot of dualisms. That means being really, really, really either silent or um, having a lot of caveats when you say things. You know, like, for example, it, it's you can't really be Derridian and say, like, I know for sure that this means this ever. Mm -hmm. And, it, and if you want to live that way, great. And it's almost like a monkish existence in a lot of ways. But the reason why it hasn't come on is people want to have identities. You know, people, yeah. very few people want to be a pure existentialist. People want to 
have a Latino culture that they come from, that they enjoy being a part of and like to celebrate. They like being men. They like being women and whatever that means to them. They like uh, being American or maybe they don't like being American. Maybe they like the expatriate identity. But all of these things are like categories for them to fit into and they enjoy being in. And because of that, postmodernism will never really take hold, just like existentialism and Kierkegaardian philosophy didn't, because it's really, really, really hard to be an actual individual. And it normally it leaves you alone and being a miser. Um, but so does that make sense? I guess I'm saying yeah. like most, the reason why is this person an actual Latino is, is a important question, even for all these people who are quote unquote, very postmodern is because they all enjoy being, they, they want to protect and participate in that cultural history, which I don't blame them for. Um, yeah, yeah I, I am reminded in that part of, part of what you were saying by the big Lebowski mm -hmm. as, as I, as I am reminded from time to time. Um, and when, do you remember the big Lebowski? I do. Yeah. It's just, they're, you know, they're basically in a fight <laughs> and, um, John Goodman's character, who's Walter, mm -hmm. um, basically they're, they're yelling back and forth. The nihilists, the German nihilists that they know and the, that they bowl at the same place as are in the parking lot. They're, they're, they're yelling back and forth. And one of the nihilists say, it's not fair. And um, and Walter says, "Fair, who's the effing nihilist here? What are you, a bunch of effing crybabies?" Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's one of my favorite things of all time because I know you were talking about existentialism, not nihilism, but very few people actually want to live by one of these philosophies or codes or or standards because it's like at a certain point you're outside a bowling alley and John Goodman screaming at you about you know about being a vagina because that you think things aren't fair but you're a nihilist. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's my takeaway from all of this. I know yeah. that that's probably super philosophical. No, it is because it shows, um, I think the test of existential repugnance, which is what it's sometimes called. Um, like, can it be lived basically? Mm -hmm. I think that doesn't really have anything to do with the truth. You know, it could be the case that that is the true way to live, but none of us can do it, which is just like, a tragedy, which I think you most know. existentialists would say anyways. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think there's anything to the truth, but it does, if you are slightly Kantian or at least pragmatic. Uh -oh. that, this even, is what I'm looking for though. I wanted yeah. you to say, I wanted you to say his name. Yeah. Well, see Kant kind of stands in contrast to all this because his big fear is like, I don't want people to use absolutes in conversation in an argument because mm -hmm. you literally can't have an argument with somebody. Mm -hmm. You talk past people. one another, which yeah. is what happens all the time. Yeah. And it leads to these weird fanat either fanaticism or dogmatism. Those are like the two sides of the spectrum that he identified. And it's like you, by allowing these absolute things to come into your life, um, you cut off any form of critique whatsoever because you've already reached it. You know, there's no struggling to be like, you know, I could be wrong. So like, let's have a conversation and maybe you'll show me something. It's you coming in. You're not having a conversation because 
you're just coming in and representing the absolute that you think is real. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- what was the relationship between Kant and Hegel, and how do you see that sort of translating into our culture today? Yeah. Well, Kant basically said, um, in better terms, and I'm completely butchering it, so forgive me, the people who have read him, I know you're out there. Um, <laughs> like, Kant basically said, like, he established all of these dualisms, just mm-hmm. tons of dualisms. And by that, I mean two things that are equally true, maybe equally real, maybe not, but both equally important, period. And they will remain in constant tension and they will be with you forever. That's what it means to be a human being, um, period. Uh, and he said in one of his essays, if people followed these dual these dualisms, then there would be philosophic peace forever. Like there would there would be no more fanaticism or dogmatism. There would still be argument, um, but there wouldn't be um, those two things. Hmm. And Hegel was a great unifier. I mean, his system of synthesis is a response to Kantian dualism. So you have a thesis and an antithesis. And Hegel's basically like, well, we can make it one again. We don't have to live with dualism. And I think what I've come across philosophically is the human mind, mine included, doesn't like dualisms. Like we, most people do not like saying, oh, there's good things and bad things about everything. Mm-hmm. You know, it's much easier to, with those. Yeah, it's much easier to be like, it is always wrong to blank or this is always a good thing or mm-hmm. these groups of people can never be this and beep, 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 like very, there's only one, just the one. And we like to have something that connects all the dots and creates a giant meta narrative that explains everything that from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. So I just see Hegel as a philosophical person a philosopher, I don't know why I said a philosophical person, who is basically like, we're moving back to the one. You know, we, I'm making the absolute again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how does that yeah. translate into what we're seeing today in our discussions about tribalism, purity, uh, you know, party lines, things of that nature? Like, where is Kant? Where is Hegel? Where, where are their influences still being felt um, yeah. today? Kant's influences are being felt today when you meet someone who, when you have a political conversation with or an ethical conversation with, or even an aesthetic conversation with who says things like, well, from my experience or um, what I kind of am thinking, and then they have reasons. And then when they, when you engage with them, they give you your reasons, their reasons, they give you, you give them uh, your reasons and you guys discuss. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think Hegel's influence is seen when it's, I am a, I am a champion of social justice, or mm-hmm. I am a true believer in, in I'm born again. These mm-hmm. kind of claims that are like mm-hmm. the fusion. Of I have ideas. found the truth, right? I yeah. Found the absolute. And they're weirdly always about identity too. Like I'm a mm-hmm. born again Christian or I'm an enlightened social mm-hmm. activist, mm-hmm. you know, or, or any sane person. No. Yes. It's when people start using the phrase, obviously, or we all know, mm-hmm. comma, insert mm-hmm. any statement. It's, yep. 
by that it's because Kant's basic contribution to it is there is a gap between in the most fundamental, easy to digest form. I would say the central facet of Kant's philosophy is there is a gap between what's going on mm-hmm. and what we think is going on. And mm-hmm. there always will be one. And mm-hmm. absolutism says there is no gap. Those are one mm-hmm. and the two thing. Like what I think is going on mm-hmm. is exactly what's going on. Yeah, we figured it out, guys. Yeah. So anytime there is no distance between reality and a person's beliefs, that is when they are thinking in an absolute mm-hmm. mindset. So in some ways, Kant, Kant is a major forerunner of postmodernity. Yes. In my opinion. I think people, he's also like one of the most modern people ever in other ways, just because he's mm-hmm. so systematic. But yep. And he breaks his own rules all the time. But mm-hmm. in if you would read him charitably, I think you would come to that. Mm-hmm. In what ways are we not being charitable to Hegel? Like what's the most charitable reading of Hegel and his descendants or disciples? Hegel offers something in which he offers agreement. And I think that is the, the a beautiful thing about Hegel. So I think in its best form, synthesis is basically saying like, well, you're right and you're right to opposing views and like I'm going to find a way to like bring you together you know mm-hmm. and so for his the most fundamental Hegelian synthesis is like being and nothing can be synthesized into becoming you know mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. it's kind of like it's this middle ground it's this gray area and like that's mm-hmm. the realness you know that's mm-hmm. where reality so is. gray areas are something that hegel is comfortable with but then those gray areas become absolutized yeah it becomes you know in a way you are striving because for kant there is no point to strive for synthesis in certain things mm-hmm. um and if you do he uses a method i don't know how much I should get into this. I'm sorry. Let's do it. Okay. Well, his method of like coming to belief in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. it's called transcendental reasoning, which is Mm -hmm. basically reasoning backwards. So it will be like, Hey, do you like ethics? And everyone who's a thinking person, although there's some people who are like, no, most people would be like, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I like to say like in that big Lebowski example, that's not fair. Yep. Or someone shouldn't steal all my shit, or mm-hmm. please don't kill my children, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, most people tend to do that. And then Kyle would say, oh, okay, well, if you do like ethics, these are the things that have to be real in some sense of the word mm-hmm. for ethics to work. So yeah. I'm not saying ethics are real or that they're mm-hmm. good. But, but if but you want saying, this, you have yeah. to have these two. Yeah. So it's like it's about consistency it's, and seeing how things actually work. Exactly. So his big thing is like, if you want ethics, then there needs to be an immortal soul. There needs to be free will and there needs to be a God. And if you don't, but you don't have to want ethics. So like, yeah, he's, you he's not really making an argument. He's just saying, if you do want ethics on how we use ethics as humans, then we will, we, this is what it is. And so mm-hmm. everything is backwards. You know, so his, I mean, you can call it kind of a coherence test, right? Yes, basically. Like, do, is what you say you believe, are, are, are you really coherently believing that? Or are you just kind of piecing things together? Exactly. And he does that with people's aesthetics, view, aesthetic views. He mm-hmm. does that with 
things that we take for granted, like causality and space mm-hmm. and time. And just like, well, mm-hmm. if you want this, then, you know, mm-hmm. like. Let's, um, let's try a little experiment. Let's do that with some of the examples we brought up. Metal, rhinos, and what it mm-hmm. means to be Latino. So with metal. So how do we, yeah. how do we kind of bring a Kantian corrective to what we see right now as an as a overwhelmingly Hegelian way of the metal community defining itself? Yeah. So I think a Kantian argument could go something like... Um, it would it would be a critique of pure metallic reason, I guess, if that yeah. is a word. It would, it would be, so Kant's critique of pure reason is basically like, here, let me tell you all these issues, and then I'll give you an argument for both sides, and both of the arguments are valid. So yeah. what do we do? So he'll be like, hey, is God real? Here's a good argument that he is. Here's a good argument that he's not. Is space infinite? Here's a good argument that it is. Here's a good argument that it's not. So like, oops. And basically, is Metallica metal? Is Metallica metal? Yeah. So it's like, in this conversation, there is a perfectly good argument, I am sure, that says that they are not. I'm sure it's very mm-hmm. valid. No and double bass. Also, no double bass yeah, metal. No double bass, too melodic, kind of corny, mm-hmm. not dark enough, too showboaty, mm-hmm. too charismatic, actually approachable, doesn't sound like shit. So it's mm-hmm. not metal. Has played major um, festivals and concerts around the has, world. Is more successful than my metal band. Metal. <laughs> um, and then on the other side, I'm sure there's arguments that, and I know there are, that Metallica is actually metal. A, it's their name. Their name is... Name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They have yeah. like a half-naked chick riding a space dragon. Yeah. B, they have like leather chokers on and weird mm-hmm. gross stuff. I had a whole album that's just black. Yeah, yeah, great, 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 great. There's like mm-hmm. metallic thunderbolts on the bottom mm-hmm. of their letters. Enter Sandman. Yeah. yeah, just weird stuff, blah, blah, blah. So whatever. Reason in this situation will not give you a solution because as we just saw, there's arguments for both. And what that would, ex- so then we have to take a step back and we'd say, oh, well then I guess what we're talking about isn't actually as part of our experience as something like, is this wet or not? You know, like, which yep. is very easy to be like, oh, yeah, it is. Or no, it's not. And obviously, if you're very postmodern, you would be like, well, there's different degrees of wetness. So maybe people would disagree there, which is true. But for Kant, let's just say something as observable as, is this wet? Is it not? There isn't, there aren't really logical arguments for that. <laughs> it's just kind of there. Mm-hmm. So taking a step back, we would say, well, obviously what we're talking about here is something that's very personal to people, you know? Yes. Like most of these arguments tend to come from, well, for me, metal music has to be very intense, a melodic mm-hmm. kind of noise rock, post noise rock metal. And then for other people, it's an argument from history. It's saying, well, for me, metal's a continuum and Metallica was certainly part of that continuum. And yeah, maybe some of it's really corny now, but compared to Wham, which is what was also on the radio at the time, it's yeah. very metal, like mm-hmm. very harsh. Mm-hmm. And I think Kant would just say, well, you guys are talking about the same thing. You just yeah. have different standards. And I think that is ultimately where these things fall into is Kant would just basically say the absolute of metal is something that neither one of you have access to. 
because obviously yeah. you you don't through reason and you don't through experience. So I think I think I'm sure he wouldn't even give a flying crap about what metal music is. But like, yeah, if he did, it would be something along the lines of like, this is an argument of taste, you know, mm-hmm. which are fruitful, and you guys can mm-hmm. affect each other's taste. But just realize that you're not actually talking about anything verifiable, really. So, like, yeah. there's no point in doing mm-hmm. this. Um, okay, so let's talk about rhinos. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a mm-hmm. shot at rhinos, but since you're a better Kantian and Hegelian um, mm-hmm. reader than I am, I probably will need a little more assistance than you needed for Metallica. Okay. So Mitt Romney, is he a rhino? A lot of people mm-hmm. say, well, Mitt Romney's not a rhino. Why is he not a rhino? He was the Republican nominee for president. Yeah, the vast majority of people who call themselves Republicans voted for Mitt Romney. He ran as a Republican governor. He's been a Republican his whole adult life. He is pro-business. He wants to lower taxes. He wants to increase economic growth. He is pro-family, traditional family. He's a Mormon, which makes him very uh, culturally, socially conservative, um, about as conservative as you can be. He's a person of faith. He's a person who believes in personal and social charity. He's very involved in his church. So all those things would be very pro. Romney is a real Republican. He's just as Republican as anyone else. Romney is not a rhino. Okay, other Mm -hmm. side. Romney's a rhino. Yeah, he was a Republican, but in Massachusetts. Like, yeah, yeah, he was a governor. No real Republican could get elected governor of Massachusetts. He was pro-choice before he was pro-life, before he started running for president. The guy is rich, but that doesn't make him a fiscal conservative. He invented or helped bring about Romney Care in Massachusetts, which is nearly universal health care. It was the precursor to Obamacare. It's bigger government. The guy uh, is too soft on immigration. He's too soft on you know people not not really um, being able to be as free as we want them to be. He wants the government to be too big. He was just pretending to be conservative. He's not a real Republican. He's a rhino. He's a Republican name only. Mitt Romney is a rhino. Yeah. Okay. So how do we count this? You know, how do we how do we sort of uh, sift through these these arguments about Mitt Romney and um, whether or not he's a real Republican? I would say if you want to use the word Republican, mm-hmm. then you have to realize from what both sides just said that once again, it's a definition produced by a culture. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it is, there is no form of Republican floating out of, in space. Mm-hmm. And if there is, we don't know what it is. So it's okay. called a, it's called the Ted Cruz. Yeah, it's he's the <laughs> ultimate evolution, and he's you grotesque know? to look upon. So congratulations, pure Republican. Shield your eyes, um, but it's it's out there. Maybe, probably not, since no one's really platonic anymore. I hope, mm-hmm. um, but it's the the point being. You can't say something like Republican in name only when you realize that culture is what determines what a Republican is. You know, like there, mm-hmm. there isn't a line 
for Republican, really. And I think mm-hmm. that is well. Actually... And one part of the one part of the argument would be since 1860, when the Republican Party began, have there been any changes to the party platform? Yeah. The answer is yes, there have been massive tectonic shifts in the party platform. So what it means to be a Republican, at least historically, has shifted massively. Now, someone might come back and say, yeah, but I'm talking about Republicans now, Republicans in the last five years, 10 years. I'm not talking about Abraham Lincoln. I'm not even talking about Mm -hmm. Teddy Roosevelt. I'm talking about Republicans as currently constituted. Like, this guy is not a real Republican. Yeah, I would say there was never a now... You know, and not to be like, ooh, so edgy, like, what's what's truth? But, like, what makes Republican identity now, quote-unquote, is the summation of all of those other things which have constantly been in change. Mm-hmm. I think what, if you even allow a Kantian kind of reverse thinking to come into play, you've already kind of dislodged the absolute. So, like... Mm-hmm. So, like, for some people... Like immigration has become the absolute standard. Yes. If you are not hardline anti illegal immigration, get them all out, build a 10 foot wall, deport the 11 million illegal immigrants living here. If you're not that, for some people, then I mean, that's what got Marco Rubio in hot water was that on that one issue, he was mm-hmm. willing to compromise what has become the party line. That's the absolute standard. That's the Hegelian absolute of some people within the Republican Party who would who would jettison, you know, more than half of other people that call themselves Republicans because of this issue. Yeah. And it doesn't make sense because that issue becoming part of the Republican Party is already a long cultural history. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like Yeah, and I said you- before, Ronald Reagan, the guy who everybody just loves slobbering over in the Republican Party, he's the, mm-hmm. also the amnesty president. And if you go back to those debates that were posted between George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan in their in their primary to try to become the nominee in 1980, they're they're competing over how soft they can be on immigration. Yeah, and they were both Republican presidents. Well, it just, it goes to show you that, like, these issues, basically the big thing with it is just, like, this is the, this is the ultimate dualism, okay? As humans, we can't live without some form of an absolute. However, we must try to resist as much as possible. So what I mean by that is, even Kant secretly has an absolute. I mean, he... He's reached the point where he can say, I know there's no absolute, which, you know, is a form it's of, a, it's, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's like that classic, like everything's relative. And it's like, even this statement, which is like, okay, yeah. sure. But there is an element of truth of like, you have to land at some point, you know, yeah. you got to land, but how you land, you know, it's, as Heidegger said is, it's not about trying to get out of the circle. It's about how you get into it. You know, yep. it's like you being willing to recognize that, you know, I'm operating under the absolute that my government shouldn't try to enforce its ideals on me. Okay. But what does that really mean in the modern context? Like, could I be convinced that maybe the needs of, of certain people because of how much technology has changed, how much surveillance has changed, 
how much culture has changed, it's different now. Like that. Well, I'll tell I, you why yeah. I reject Donald Trump as a Republican. Mm-hmm. So I reject Donald Trump as a Republican because during the course of his life, he's been a Democrat. He's voted mm-hmm. for Democrats. He's been vociferously pro-abortion. Mm-hmm. He he has taken advantage of crony capitalism, which is anathema to limited government, constitutional conservative, you know, small government leaning, free market type um, people. The Republican Party is the party of ostensibly. Um, I believe that Donald Trump wants big, powerful, strong man government, not limited federalist uh according to the principle of subsidiarity, power back to the states and localities government. So he's anti-federalist in that way, not anti-federalist in the way that Thomas Jefferson was, but he's like, like mm-hmm. super federalist, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> or like yeah. he's, you know, he's, he wants a totalitarian kind of power. He wants to give more decrees and more fiat kind of executive orders for those reasons. And more the fact that it seems like he's more trafficking in identity politics than in the politics of freedom and limiting the government and checks and balances and and localism and subsidiarity. For those reasons, I say Donald Trump is not a Republican. Yeah. What am I I doing wrong, if anything, in in saying that? That's the other side of this thing. Um, I think that doctrine is real. You know, I think um, what is missing in a lot of these conversations is what is what people are willingly associating with. So let me clarify. Metal is not one of these things. Metal by definition does has no doctrine. You know, it is, it is mm-hmm. an identity based off of a music genre. So obviously it's already ambiguous as hell mm-hmm. from the get go. Yeah. Because even though we said things like black Sabbath, Iron Maiden and Metallica, those things already have a lot of things not in common, you know, so from the get go, whereas other things like the Republican party, um, uh, evangelical Christianity, um, are even more codified things like Roman Catholicism. Here's a great example. So Roman Catholicism obviously has a very hierarchical layer of doctrine, which they even willingly call dogma. So that's great. And I think that's totally fine because when you become a Catholic, you, first of all, it's a process. And second of all, you are willingly choosing to embrace those things. So if you are in the Catholic church and you think that Mary was not a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, you are probably not a Catholic and people will be right to say that. Because it's very or, or like I do have friends who are liberal Catholics who are like, ah, I don't really mm-hmm. think Mary was a virgin. What you could say, and I think what C.S. Lewis says about Christianity applies here to Catholics, is mm-hmm. you're a bad Catholic in this area. Yeah. It's like you're a Catholic, but you're not being a consistent Catholic or a good Catholic. Like you're not – you're – you're still a Catholic because 95% of things, you know, dogma, you know what I'm saying? Like if you, if you subscribe yeah. to 95% of doctrine or dogma, but like 5%, you're like, eh, in those areas, you are not being a consistent Catholic, but it doesn't mean that as your identity that you're not a Catholic. You can still very much, like there are a lot of gay Catholics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. And I, I think also it you, you can still be a part of those doctrinal communities, I guess is what I'll call them are dogmatic communities if you at least deal with the with the doctrine you know so i think you could be 
a gay evangelical Christian gasp. If is it, is it have, possible? If your doctrine of sexuality engages with what they focus mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, yeah, I'm a gay, I don't know why anyone would want to do this as a mm-hmm. side note, but like, yeah, I'm a gay evangelical Christian and I focus on the family by creating more types of families, you know, which is very different from someone not engaging with it at all and just mm-hmm. being like, I don't care about that at all. I'm living the way I want to, but I'm mm-hmm. still an evangelical Christian. Like at that point, mm-hmm. it's like, if it's like, oh, I don't believe Mary was literally a virgin, but this is why I think the concept of the mother of God is very important for modern day mm-hmm. Christians. Like that's at least engaging with mm-hmm. it and recognizing the weight of that dogma. Just like but someone, also yeah. there's a difference between being heterodox, a heretic and not being a thing. Yeah. So being a Christian heretic, you're still a Christian. Yeah. Right? Like you're mm-hmm. like like it's not the same thing as just being an atheist. <laughs> yeah. like, like so you're still trying to be part of that community. I think there's something to be said for for that saying like, well, the community in general doesn't agree with you, doesn't think you're right. But at the same time, you your identity and your 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 dogma and all this stuff is in alignment enough to make you part of this community. It's just because of these issues over here. So actually heresy would be a really useful tool for some of these conversations about metal or rhinos or Latinos, because if you allowed people even just to be heretics, they could still be part like, like you could say, well, Romney's a Republican, but he's a heretic on healthcare and on these and on immigration. That's not mm-hmm. the same thing as saying he's a rhino. Being saying he's a rhino yeah. is more extreme. It's saying he's not really a Republican. He just calls himself a Republican. I think. Yeah. I think the category of heresy is actually helpful here. It's less extreme. Yeah, it is less extreme. Well, because it's you're willing to say, and I think heterodoxy is an even healthier category here. Where yeah. I think heterodoxy is something where you can. You try to, as a community, focus on the big thing. You know what I mean? So it's like, I don't even need to say that someone who thinks that, um, what's something you're not, someone who thinks, who believes in a literal seven-day young earth creationism, okay? I don't need to say they're a heretic because I don't think that has anything to do really with my faith at all. Like, I would say, yeah, they're a Christian like me. You know, I don't even need to bring up, I don't, I don't think that they're even missing anything. I mean, I think that they're wrong and I think that there's reasons that they should reconsider that, but it's one of those things where this is not about, it's like what I said with the John Piper NT Wright stuff. It's only when you make things into this insane absolute that more importantly, that you have access to, that's the real key. So I'm not saying there's no such things as absolutes. I'm not saying that. I'm more saying it's the belief that you have undoctored, unfiltered, ahistorical, just pure, direct access to an absolute. That's Mm -hmm. when everything gets crazy. That's when everything gets crazy. So when you Mm -hmm. are the true bleeding heart of the Republican Party, then mm-hmm. Mitt Romney is a giant issue for you. If you're someone who kind of rolls with the changes and says, I typically agree with the Republican Party and the Republican Party typically does these things, 
then it's not really a big deal. And yeah, he might be a little bit more into bigger, you know, to large government than you are, but that doesn't affect his standing as a Republican. And I think, and then Donald Trump's a great example because this is someone who almost has nothing to do with anything Republicans have ever been. So yeah, it's like, except for that sneaky, shameful white nationalist streak that you know has been yeah, lurking beneath the surface. Exactly. And I think that is, you know, I think this brings up maybe in conclusion, um, like the no true Scotsman fallacy that we talked about a little while ago. Fallacies. Fallacies. So it's it, when we talked about it, um, I think me and you love the example of vegans. So it's very easy to accuse someone of the no true Scotsman fallacy when they're talking about vegans. So yeah. if they said, no vegan has ever told a lie, and then you said, well, my sister's a vegan and she lies all the time, okay? They, and if they said, oh, well, then she's not really a vegan, you could be like, well, actually, she is a vegan, so I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it, it has to do with you know, the objective no versus subjective standards. Exactly. Like the objective standard for veganism is very, very cut and dry. You either eat animal products or you don't. And if you don't, you're a vegan. So period. It's the same thing. And it gets a little bit more wishy-washy when you get into ethnicity. So a Scotsman is someone who was born in Scotland or born to Scottish parents or so on and so on. Mm -hmm. And if that person is a rampaging murderer, it doesn't affect their ethnicity mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. Because if it by Scotsman you mean that guy's a great guy because I'm Scottish and he's Scottish, and that other guy's not a Scotsman because even though he was born in Scotland, he does terrible things, then we're probably talking about two different things. Yeah. You're talking about this weird subjective identity that is not based on, on anything except your whims. So, like, no one cares. So, like, to be a true vegan means you vote Democrat is something is it's that's a that's a problem. Mm -hmm. you know? Or, or like we said before, to be a true Latino, mm -hmm. you have to vote Democrat. That's a similar claim. Yeah. Or, or in what we've experienced in our lives to be a true Christian, you have to vote Republican. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like these things don't really have anything to do with each other. And I think the more complex an identity becomes so not just a vegan not just african-american but a socio-political crypto marxist third wave feminist who finds value in african spiritualism but believes that it's everyone's internal quest for the good that really matters type of person I don't mm -hmm. know where the hell the lines are when, when we get into, like, this level of identity. You know, it gets really, really complicated. I think um, identity and drawing lines are going to be things that continue to come up in our, our subsequent podcast episodes. But we're going to leave it there for now. Um, it's been an hour. I think we've covered a lot of ground here with party lines. In terms of next week, Nick, I have a proposal for you. Okay. Um, I would like to talk... And we might have to change this depending on scheduling, but but I would like to talk about the concept of energy. Uh, energy, energy policy, new energy, um, 
solar energy, power, all of these things, uh, maybe a little bit of climate change, although that's not the main focus, like just talking about like how, how vast this, this thing is called energy and how we take it for granted uh, with our product, podcast, with our computers, with all of our devices and the cars we drive and transportation and how live a topic this is. Are you willing to do um, a podcast on energy next week? Absolutely. All right. The reason I ask is because our good friend Chris Flowers is going to make himself available to come as an expert conversant. And uh, I think, audience, you will be enlightened by him. He is a Ph.D. student uh, working on his final project at Caltech um, in optimizing uh, a different kind of solar panel. So he is a a world-class expert in alternative energy, particularly uh, solar panels and material science. And I think he has some really interesting thoughts on the current state of, uh, of energy in our culture. Yeah. So, but that's it for this week. Uh, hopefully we'll bring you an energy podcast next week, but uh, that's all we have for now. I am Ryan. And I'm Nick. And you'll hear from us next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.